Hey everyone, instead of our normal spoiler warning, uh, I wanted to let y'all know that we had Drew McCaffrey, a beta reader for Brandon Sanderson on the podcast, and we just couldn't really cut this Cosmere discussion that we ended up going into. So due to some crafty editing, we have two episodes this week. One is going to contain full Cosmere spoilers. That is this episode. So if you haven't read the whole Cosmere, uh, I would go listen to our other episode which is just going to be reduced to the specific Hero of Ages discussion without any spoilers beyond that. This episode does include every aspect of the hero's journey that we discussed. It just includes more Cosmere spoilers in it. So no need to listen to both. Listen to this one if you've heard all of the Cosmere stuff and the other if you haven't read all of the Cosmere. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to A Hero's Journey, a literary podcast. I'm your host and judge, Jack, and I'm here with my misanthropic misborns. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. All right, and I'm Drew McCaffrey. I'm one of the hosts of the Inking Out Loud podcast, and uh, you can find my book reviews and literary analysis on Tor.com as well. Each week, we look at a different book through Joseph Campbell's monomyth. This week, we're discussing Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, the third book in the Mistborn series. This week, we're also going to be following Vin, which is what we did for book two of the series, uh, because we felt that while this book has quite a few different points of views to encompass the full story, uh, hers makes most sense for our discussion this week. Now, the entirety of the book has quite a bit of information. So as usual, if you haven't read it, uh, we encourage you to do so before you listen, like we say at the beginning. This story follows the second story several months afterwards in which... Elend is, is now the ruler of a growing nation. He's married to Vin, and they've uh, and they're having a hard time bringing in different cities into the fold of that nation that are different holdouts for different reasons, whether it's through religious fanatics um, or uh, military coups or a, a, a host of different reasons. They're trying to bring in the rest of humanity into the fold of this one nation to prepare for the apocalypse that seems to be coming. Uh, the mists of the planet themselves have turned against the people and, and people are getting sick and dying if they've gone out into the mists. Giant armies of Kolos are raging throughout the world and control of them is being fought between the Mistborns, Elend and Vin, because, hey, surprise, Elend's now a Mistborn. And they're being contested by a large group of Inquisitors who are being controlled by Ruin himself. Uh, this all culminates through uh, a quite sporadic journey. Uh, we follow the points of view of Tensoon, of Sazed, of Elend, of Vin, of Spook, uh, and it, it all culminates with a uh, ascension to godhood twice over. And diving right on into our departure, let's start where all great heroes begin their final leg of their journey uh, with trying to defeat a god and save the world. Uh, arguing for this week, take it away, Zach. So Vin this week uh, has a very broad goal. She's trying to save Scadrill and defeat Ruin. Um, she believes that there's something that they must be able to do in order to counteract his... Uh, his dark forces while he seems hell bent on destroying the world as they know it. 
Now, our call to adventure here is discovering this. When they when she discovers a fifth plate in one of the stockpiles that seem to have been created for by the Lord Ruler for the end of the world that dictates um, that while the Lord Ruler um, you know, tried to do his best, if they're finding these, it means that he has died and that he wasn't successful. Uh, it kind of paints the Lord Ruler in a new light, which is something that happens throughout the book in which we had previously just seen him as a dictator, a narcissist, um, but apparently he was trying at least to do some good for the world, and it's something that Vin and Ellen and, and the other characters discuss quite frequently. Um, and she starts to develop a secret plan, something that she realizes that if she shares it with her colleagues, that uh, Ruin may be able to influence it in a substantial way. So she's, But since he's not a mind reader, and he, I think even the plate even says that he's not omnipotent, um, keeping it to herself is going to be enough, maybe, to, to be the uh, deciding factor. Now, for our refusal of the call, we don't have a great one in this story, mainly because there is not a viable option. Most of the stories, our heroes can just say, eh, not my problem, or you know, let somebody else deal with it. But Vin is very much in a situation here in which she not only holds a vast amount of, of magical investiture power, as well as important political positions and religious significance, it even if she weren't to wield all that, then the world's probably going to end and everybody's going to die. So she doesn't really have a choice and makes no qualms about even trying to pay homage to her refusal of the call. Um, for our meeting with the mentor, we have a pretty interesting one this week. So Sazed, who has been a, a very stable force for the entire cast of characters throughout the story, um, throughout the trilogy, has recently fallen kind of on hard times emotionally. He's regretting the, the death of a loved one. Um, he's dealing with moral and religious issues that he's keeping inside of himself, and he's not himself, so to speak. And so he has a conversation with uh, Vin in which they kind of bolster each other. Uh, he has the information and the history and everything locked inside because he's a keeper. Um, but she plays a bit more of a mentor role in an interaction with him in which she's more of an emotional mentor to Sazed. Um, so he's been helping her throughout the trilogy. Now it's her turn to kind of prop him up and remind him what it is that they're they're aiming. Then gives Sazed the picture of the flower that uh, Kelsier had given to her back in book one, which is from his wife, and kind of reminds Sazed what, what they're doing this all for. And I think that's a very good interaction moment with the mentor, even if it doesn't make Sazed in this particular instance the one who's imparting knowledge. For the crossing of the threshold, we have the discovery of the 1 16th sickness. They use science and data and figure out that only 1 16th of the people who are being exposed to the mists are actually falling sick. Um, and this symbolizes a intelligent design behind what's happening. And it allows them to take more concrete steps towards solving it. And so before, while they're somewhat floundering, this little bit of insight certainly helps them along their way and delineates the first part of the story where it's mostly, hey, the apocalypse is happening. Let's look at all avenues and helps them narrow their focus a bit, which I really like. Uh, for their belly of the whale, we, um, we have Ellen who's agreeing to help with the mists 
and help uh, Vin with her plans, but Vin not really being able to share those plans. Uh, it, it, it's that delineating line where I have a plan, I'm starting to take actions for it, you're going to support me as my husband, as the ruler of the nation, um, even if you aren't able to uh, be privy to exactly what it is that I'm doing. And I think that once that decision has been made, um, the actions that come from it that we see through the road of trials and the rest of the story um, make a lot more sense. I think if you were to kind of take that bit out of the story and left everything absolutely the same, you would be very confused as a reader as to why the characters were acting so autonomously. All right, Zach. So as we often do, I'm not going to argue the journey here and it would be foolish to try. This is definitely the journey that we've been building up since um, the Well of Ascension, that there is some greater power working in the world. The Lord Ruler wasn't the ultimate villain of this story. So great call to adventure here, or great journey here. But for the call to adventure... I want to push back only because we know that um, Vin has been dedicated to this plan for a while. This is the fifth plate they found, the fifth stockpile they found. So from the first stockpile, I think she would have been committed to this. But there is this aspect that we see where Vin has a secret plan to try and defeat Ruin. Uh, she doesn't know the name yet, but... She does have this plan to defeat Ruin, so I don't have a good argument against that, except that she probably had this plan from earlier um, in, in the story that we just don't get to see. Yeah, and I think because we don't get to see it, it's difficult to point to. Um, and I also think, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that she doesn't know the name of Ruin yet. We're just, for the purposes of the podcast, I don't need us to swap between the deepness and Ruin and and what have you. Um, so I think that's just good for our listeners as a reminder. But uh, I, I do think that this aspect of the plates is definitely the call, even if we don't get to see the um, origins of it. What's on this specific plate that makes you think that this is where, for her, it really begins, rather than necessarily with the earlier ones, Zach? Leading there, I, I genuinely cannot remember if it's this plate or the last one that they find, but I thought one of the plates was meant to kind of makes her give up hope for a second before she settles on this idea that there, there must still be more that she can do. Um, I think it's the last plate. Yeah, because uh, information on Meladium is the fifth plate. Yeah. So it uses the emotional uh, alamancy to control the Conjure and the Kolos. Yeah, this, this plate doesn't even have, like, aside this plate from saying this the is... last one is in Faradax City, they don't say what's on the plate. Mm. Uh, it also finds a postscript note on the plate that states their folk can learn anything they speak or write and that only thoughts are safe. Yeah, so. Man, I wish it was easier to remember the name of all the different Meladiums and blah, blah, blah. Let, let, let's not start with the 116 thing still not quite making sense because it's snapping people into god metal mistings, even though the one, the 16 comes from the number of non-god metals that exist that are allomantic. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, the point in the narrative when uh, the deus ex machina comes in real hard. <laughs> yeah. So what it is about the fifth plate is there's this postscript on it that uh, states that the foe, who they, again, haven't named yet, can learn anything that they speak or write. And and I don't know if they've 
learned that he can actually influence it yet, but he can definitely learn it. And uh, this makes it Vin's responsibility to take the burden upon herself for the remainder of the journey. She's certainly assisted by our myriad of characters, uh, but it's her that the burden falls on and that we'll see by the end of her journey um, is certainly the case. Yeah, I think that she does kind of take this upon herself as the burden. So she accepts it as a call to adventure. Um, but like you said, I don't think that there is a refusal of the call or potential refusal of the call. She's very eager and very determined to go save the world because that's who she is. She is the person who thinks that she should save the world. We saw that even in the Well of Ascension when she thought she was the hero of ages. She's taking this burden on herself as thinking she's the hero of ages or at least thinking she is the person who released the power. It's her responsibility now. Wait, she's not the hero of ages? <laughs> Shut up, Zach. <laughs> I mean, she has that bit in where she's still feeling guilty over having picked the world over Elmed previously, but... Uh, that's not really a refusal of the call, more just guilty about not ever refusing the call. Yeah, I, I think that drives really well into this a meaning of the mentor because the interaction with Sazed that Zach highlighted is where Vin says that she still has some like, um, she still feels some guilt for letting Eland die but she says, I looked into his eyes and knew it was what he wanted me to do. She says that Sazed gave her that power. And I think that's why he's a pretty good mentor. I always hear from my mentors that the relationship goes both ways. Mentors mentor the mentees and mentees also provide some mentorship to their mentors. So there is this point where Sazed has mentored Vin throughout a lot of the books and now he needs some help and she provides that to him. Drew, do you have any thoughts on the Vin Sazed relationship or mentor? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it is in in a, a strange way, it is a meeting the mentor moment. Um obviously we're in the third book of a trilogy, and so it's it's tough to fully align moments uh to the hero's journey when there's you know, there's an intra book hero's journey that we're we're grappling with here, and then there's also a series long hero's journey, and that's why I think you know we don't really get a refusal of the call, you know, because we're three books in, right? You know, that refusal has already happened, and and you don't need to retread that because it'll derail the narrative in a lot of ways. But meeting the mentor is not something that necessarily derails a story, but since we're in the third book there needs to be complexity in it. And I, I you know, I, I know you guys have discussed, you know, uh, the idea of different characters undergoing hero's journeys within the same book. And so in a lot of ways, Sazed has his own journey in the Hero of Ages. And I think, um, I think Zach is right in that this is a meeting the mentor moment, not only for Vin, but also for Sazed. Yeah, I like that. And I want to ask for the refusal from you guys. Do you think Spook has one? Because this is the first time we're really getting a heavy Spook-centric narrative, and we're not going to touch much on it throughout the this episode as a whole. But I think if anybody has a refusal, it's either Marsh or 
Spook. Oh, I think I don't think Marsh does. gets it. I don't think Marsh gets enough time to have many of the points on the journey here. We don't get enough. Or we don't get enough time with Marsh's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Seiza does because he he has this doubt that is gnawing at him. Um, with Spook, though, I I don't know if he fully does. Maybe the closest is kind of trying to reconcile his um, his attraction to Beldry versus you know what he's trying to do in Erto. Yes. I think the reason I don't like Sazed as having a refusal here is because it's extremely extended, I think, from his point of view, right? He yeah. goes out and does other things, but it's all with this underlying idea of I've lost my way. I'm not doing the thing that I'm supposed to do. So even while he's helping Elend and going, you know, to different areas and acting as a as a mediator and as a, as a political figure, he's not serving his primary purpose and goal as a keeper, as a leader of the terrorist. It's, um, I wonder if these extended themes regarding depression and its ability to affect our lives will be explored elsewhere in the cosmos. Boo, <laughs> deeper narration, boo. Please tell you only. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, so all that aside, I think we can all agree that it might be a little less traditional, but for the third part of a story, this is definitely where what we'd like to see for mm-hmm. a meeting with a mentor. Yeah, yeah, it'd be, I, I like. It'd be weird for me if we've dragged in another character to impart sage advice and disappear. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want preservation to pop his head in real quick and be like, "Here's some knowledge." All right. So for the crossing of the threshold we have here, Scorpio of the one sixteenth sickness. Um, I don't know. This this is okay. I I think that this is more of a mystery for Elon to figure out. He is eventually the one who thinks that the people from the one sixteenth sickness could burn Atium, correct? It's yes. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this for me seems more of an important crossing of the threshold or call to adventure for Eland than for Vin. Um, I don't know if there's a better one. I think we could easily see as this is the third book in the trilogy that she's crossed the threshold already, even though we have, you know, meeting of the mentor right before this, she, she's already in the world of the quest for quite a while before we pick up the narrative again. I see what you're saying that it's definitely more of an, Ellen-focused plot points. Um, I just believe that it is a good delineation within the story as to pre-this moment and post-this moment that does also affect Vin in a significant way, even if she's not the one actively interacting with it. So I, I don't, I don't really think this is a crossing the threshold moment for Vin. I think if there is one, it's the uh, the discussion with human and mm. the the first seeds of her own discovery of hemallergy and the role that's going to play later on. That's interesting. That's, yeah, that's really interesting because she doesn't realize that she has been spiked for a long time, but that yeah. would be the first interaction of with that hemallergy for her. Huh. Uh, can we just, I mean, it's probably not going to make it in the podcast. Uh, you know how people are always like, 
how did the first person know to milk a cow? Uh, <laughs> how did the first person know that hemallergy was gonna like work out? Because ruin spoke in their minds. Um, probably, yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably. I guess. In the Cosmere, that I, those questions are a lot easier when there are multiple gods running around. Yeah, I guess he was already crazy, so he got an in, and then he went, hey, by the way, if you murder that guy while also stabbing yourself, good shit's going to happen. All right, that's fair. Was there, was there hemallergy before? Um, for that's what I was going to say. I don't, I don't know. Think there is. I think if, he learned it then. Yeah, no, when no, Vashik yeah. ascended, he definitely got knowledge of hemallergy. But I yeah. don't know if we have any... Mm, I'd have to go dig through Arcanum and see if there are any words of Brandon on this. If you <laughs> if you are in a different plane, I, I never charred or whatever, if you're in a different world... world there's worlds. Yeah. Okay, if you're in a different world, world works will you, and you stab somebody who, let's say, uh, like Kaladin... Would, right metals can steal bonds, yes. Steal so you could take bonds? just a surge binding Yes. You could steal his bond, you could steal his surge binding ability, but it's very word of Brandon has those as all difficult things to accomplish. Yeah. The the important thing is you need intent to do it. So oh, you, you can't, can't just accidentally like, you know, stab Kaladin with like a you know a steel yeah. uh sword and have it, you know, rip off uh you know his strength or whatever. Like you would have to be purposely doing it. Interesting. So why does so hand allergy is not not uh, Scadrial specific? Well, it is. It is of ruin. I think. So isn't the like, other thing of ruin? Isn't um, no. Fer, no. Uh, Alamancy is of preservation, and Ferrochemy mm-hmm. predates uh, is of oh, the time of Andalusium. Yes. Um, uh, well, uh, Ferrochemy is is a manifestation of, of both. both ruin and preservation. Yeah, right. so that's why it's end neutral. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, um, but no, like put a power. Okay, yeah, yeah, but like a lot of Cosmere invested arts, hemallergy can be used on any world, and even more so than a lot of invested arts because it doesn't require a specific flavor of investiture to like create it to create the effect it's easier to use on other worlds than basically any other invested art we've seen how similar is it to the investiture art that gives power to the talking sword uh very uh, different i i think there's um at least a thematic connection in the idea of endowment um, where spikes can endow powers, but uh, it's coming I, I mean, with a pre-existing, fairly high level, whereas the other one required mm-hmm. a multitude. Yes, yeah. And, and the spike has to take it from somewhere, right? Endowment comes yes. directly from the shard. The sor- yeah, the so- <laughs> the source of endowment. Yeah, <laughs> the literal shard endowment. Um, although there is an, a, a very interesting word of Brandon out there. I'm going to see if I can pull it up um, about Ruin's investiture being used in the creation of Nightblood. I, uh, so it, it, this was from the Legion release party in uh, September of 2018. Somebody asked, does Nightblood contain any of Ruin's investiture? Not Adium, but 
And Brandon said, yes, technically. And I'm not wiggling around that because technically location in the Cosmere and who belongs to what gets really weird because ruins and vestiture is everywhere, but I'm not talking that way. I'm talking the way you actually mean it. Yeah. So, so screw you, Jack. It wasn't completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Fair enough. <laughs> wow. That's really interesting. I, I would think that it would just be like a technically because Nightblood's command is to destroy evil and ruin is destruction. Mm-hmm. But well, that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, so, so it's not Adium. So it's not in the one way that would make sense, which is that, right? Mm-hmm. Crystallized investiture of. I, yeah, it, there's there is some element of ruin and ruins investiture in the creation of Nightblood. Do we know that? The, <laughs> do we know that the group of of returned who created Nightblood, whose original name mm-hmm. I can't remember, that four group of people, five scholars, five, yeah. five scholars, yeah. Do we know that they have any world hopping pre pre the events of the creation of Nightblood? At the time they, that Nightblood created, they're one of the most traveled around, right? That's why they're sci- why they actually have like scientific understanding of investiture because they traveled other places. Gotcha. And, okay. and in fact, they created Nightblood because one or more of them went to Roshar saw shard blades oh. and decided to try to make a shard blade using their own magic and system. Went, oh, we're going to need something. If <laughs> shit gets real. We need something over here. And then, yep. and then it made the guy kill his wife. So that's good. Uh, uh, great stuff. Um, so getting back onto the journey here. Uh, 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 just just one, one particular thing, because it's got a direct word of Brandon next to it uh, for its reference on the copper mine for nightblood was not originally a metal mine or ever object spike (laughs) (laughs) originally very key wait that sounds like a you haven't haven't finished rhythm of war have you okay (laughs) that sounds like a spoily Uh, (laughs) i'll read it today before i go to bed okay um, so going back to the belly of the whale, I think that this less with Eland agreeing to help with the mist, because again, that's Eland doing something for Vin or like his, his personal journey. I think more sharing that she has a plan solidifies that she needs to be doing something that, that's sharing that she has a plan with the world is her reaffirmation of the quest to defeat ruin. What I like to see in the belly of the whale. So I think you're right. This is the point, but it's less Eland agreeing to help and more her stating out loud that she has something going on. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I just think it's a good point to highlight that she, while she has all this burden on herself, she certainly has the support of Eland and, and the rest of the cast of characters, or a majority of the cast of characters. But it is also definitely got that reaffirmation, as Ox is talking about, because by getting by having Eland be the one to agree, she's right. He might be king, and everyone might be looking to him to leadership, but it reestablishes that he's still looking to her, just as she's been worried about. Right, what we've been talking about is the theme throughout this departure is that ultimately it comes down to her. 
it, it's always been her as some character. Even, like, even though it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, it does. Kind of, a little. A tiny bit. Anybody else sad that preservation just get dumped in a field somewhere? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Poor Ginger. Look, oh, the no, stuff I, that happens uh, to Sharon's bodies is... That's right. Well, hey, uh, Vin and it gets all laid out nice. Yep. Yeah, that's because Harmony took the time to. I'm just saying, shard. The the changing over who controls a shard appears to be a concept that leaves bodies lying about the place. All I'm saying <laughs> is that when I get control of a shard, I'm not going to let the last guy fall onto a field out of nowhere. The guy that you presumably killed. Okay, the specifics of how this guy came to die is not important for the story, Jack. Um, also, at what point here, since we've all read past, at what point does Kelsier... I know I've also read that other one where we get Kelsier... Secret histories. What, what in the point, if we're going through this storyline, is when he holds the reins? It's, it's after Preservation's death, before Vin's ascension. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um... Yeah, because he's the best character ever written in history. All right. Uh, Belly, well, what do we think? Uh, no, no one say anything. Let him continue. Old statement. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, with the belly of the whale here, um, I I see the argument for this, uh, this moment being uh, a belly. Um, uh, in, in that she is willing to undergo a quote-unquote you know, uh, metamorphosis or transformation in that she's making a choice to reveal something out loud despite prior knowledge, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like the, um, the full change that I usually look for in, in this step of the hero's journey. I, uh, it's, it's not a, narrative shifting moment to the extent that I want it to be. So that's really interesting. And the will of Ascension, one of the things we talked about Vin developing is trust, especially trust in Eland. So Mm -hmm. this sharing that she has a plan just develops that trust with Eland more and it doesn't, like Drew said, it doesn't show a narrative shift. We, We already had this development where she develop the trust well yeah i well we also i want to play on the we say that the belly of the whale step may encounter a minor danger or setback this is certainly a setback in which she has no control over you know like i said in an ideal world she's sharing all information with everybody so they can make a uh, a concerted group effort against ruin but she can't do that so i'd say that's a more even more so than a minor setback yeah, that, that's a fair point. Um, but yeah, I just don't see it as this uh, like liminal moment where a a uh, a change occurs. Um, and and similarly, I didn't see that with with the uh, discovery of the sixteen percent um, or or one sixteenth, uh, you know, snapping sickness. Uh, it didn't feel like a delineation where these characters or this character particularly is entering a new phase of the narrative. So they've got me on board with this, but that's probably because I'm just so wrapped up in our thoughts from Well of Ascension. So is there 
Is there a moment for you that you think works better coming up with perhaps what's going on in their potential invasion of Fadric's city or? Oh, I, I don't know if there is. Uh, and, and this is part of the struggle with, you know, uh, ascribing each of these steps to a plot in the third book of a trilogy, um, <laughs> where, where you get this deep in as a writer and it's easy for you to sort of skip some of the moments because you've already established your hero in a lot of ways. And Vin has been our hero from the get-go, right? You know, she's been the main character of the Mistborn trilogy. And so when we're at this point, I don't know what, 70, 80% of the way through the word count of Mistborn Arrow 1, uh, she has already in a lot of ways passed through the necessary thresholds and, and gone through her bellies of the whale, so to speak. And now she has become... Uh, more or less the fully realized version of Vin that we're going to get until the climax of the whole series. Yeah, so that in terms of her personal, her personal arc, we're definitely on sort of a retread of the end of the initiation into her final return. But mm -hmm. yeah, to play yeah. Zach's favorite yeah, game, final return. Mm. <laughs> but to play Zach's favorite game, uh, since this book has so many perspectives, do you think that there's a belly of the whale in this novel at all? Yes. Spook. Right. Spook I... going into the burning house and Ooh. and yeah, agreeing to work with quote unquote Kelsier. Yeah. Bad Kelsier. Nega Kelsier. <laughs> I would also say Ten Soon calling for judgment and entering that is a pretty good belly of the whale too. Yeah, yeah I could see that. That was one of the ideas I was kicking around for who we were going to talk about. Or Ten Soon, the one, correct, correct one. I feel bad for Ten Soon. Why he's a near immortal being? Yeah, but he sure gets a lot of shit for being near immortal. Yeah, he does. <laughs> He gets He's literally punched on in this book. Oh, I just realized. <laughs> I don't know why this never came to me before. That eras three and four might be remotely salvageable as a concept because of the existence of the Kadra. Uh, maybe in a Zach is very worried about going to a more modern setting or sci-fi setting for the Cosmere. Yeah, um, Interesting. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not necessarily having high hopes, but he can. Uh, I have to ask Skyward to see. It how Sanderson writes more like technology advanced. Well, society. I definitely didn't like when they showed up in that one uh, collection of short stories on the bird planet. Okay. So six of the dusk, I was going to ask, did any of you uh, watch the release party for rhythm of war where Brandon read from the sequel to six of the dusk? No, I did not. Oh, Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Good. They're all going to have all, they're going to be pushing around their spaceships with metal. Power. There, there's some, there's some things in that, uh, and you can find that on Arcanum if you go, uh, you know, the wob.coppermine.net. Mm -hmm. um, there's a transcription of it. It is, it is something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll check that out. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say the main thing I remember for era four spoilers upcoming is that it's gonna focus on the sleepless as well as Hoyd. Yes. Hoyd, second best character. Also, I mean, 
I the love, sleepless is pretty cool. I mm-hmm. love uh, I love Hoyd's uh, cameo in this book. How she's just like, nah, he gives me the heebie jibbies. See ya. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's get Kelsey or told. That's one of Kelsey's yeah. moments of reaching out to her. Well, yeah, because he's a smart guy. What? Well, no, because Kelsey lost the first fight to Hoyt. Yeah. <laughs> he had a minor setback, but he was disadvantaged. <laughs> uh, have you uh, seen the words of Brandon that said Kelsey would kick Calvin's butt? Uh, he said in a fair depends fight. The, yeah. It depends on the battlefield, basically. Yeah, but it's fine because the way it's going, it's right. We've been informed that Kaladin is the ultimate soldier and Dalinar is the ultimate warrior, so it doesn't matter. Alex wins. <laughs> not, not, that we, not that we've all personally backed our own version of who would make the best champion in the Odium off, but hey, I'm just saying that Kelsier is is better than Dalinar, even though I really like Dalinar. That is a very roundabout way of coming to the end of our departure with. Uh, on my end, a score of three out of five, but for you, Drew, two out of five. We uh, we definitely had a little bit of disagreement on that belly of the whale. Yeah, we did. <laughs> uh, surprising, considering that in the other two books, I think we ended up with pretty solid scores for any given section. All right. Well, now that we've wrapped up our discussion and judging on the departure aspect of the monomyth we're going to head on into the initiation segment with the road of trials or the road of ash as we do on scadriel so uh let's hear it so what's really interesting about vin's road of trials in this book is i think that everything that she does falls into three separate categories she has political conflict in which she is backing up her husband, but also being used as a, uh, a political tool, especially when it relates to the religious significance that she's uh, gotten as Kelsier's heir. Um, then there's the military conflict in which she is leading not only Ellen's armies uh, and infiltrating uh, secret areas and controlling Kolos armies, uh, and then she also, we also have the magical conflict in which she is primarily dealing with inquisitors and ruin himself. Um, and I think that each of those broad categories heightens Vin's understanding of those areas, because I think, especially as we saw in book one, she was extremely naive to the idea of, of political interaction. Uh, book two, she gets more of it. And then book three, we see her actually using it um, after some interactions in very significant ways, especially when they go to some of the balls we'll talk about later. Um, the military conflict, I think, is is pretty important because beforehand she was very much kind of a lone wolf or working in a small team. Now we see her leading large groups of people. Um, and then, which also brings her into contact with a lot more diverse group of people, which I think gives her a better understanding of the world at large, which proves useful later uh, when we discuss her ascension. And then finally, the magical conflict is probably the most important of the three trials for her. Uh, the controlling of the Kolos using emotional magic, the understanding of how hemallergy works and how she can interact with the Inquisitors in a meaningful way. Um, as well as the the eventual understanding of, of how Ruin communicates and interacts with things, uh, all 
tie up into, like I said, three broad categories that I think she does a very good job of navigating. For the meeting with the higher power, we have when she goes to the ball with her husband, uh, and the she meets two higher powers on two different occasions, depending on which ball we want to discuss. I'm just going to treat the balls as as a, a type of event. Um, so the, uh, the, the first ball... Um, They've entered into something that seems extremely dangerous. They've entered into the enemy territory uh, in this enemy city and kind of put themselves at the at the whim of of these um, dangerous people. But they play their hand very well. They they showcase a certain amount of power of nobility when they interact with yeomen. They get a good side of someone who a is holding on to a lot of things that have been lost from the rest of the world including a, a belief in the lord ruler kind of holding off this ellen's national conglomeration um and he holds a ton of power in this city and that's why i'm viewing him as the higher power here um they also have some things that they're uncertain about him he's wearing that adium bead on his head uh, which they don't really know what the purposes of that is besides to be ostentatious. They think perhaps he's a mistborn. Um, it, it, a lot of questions arise from his magical abilities, but he also certainly has a large amount of political influence. And so he's a very, and he has philosophical debates with Ellen at one point, which, you know, prove that he's not just a bully, uh, which is why I really like Yeoman as, as this uh, higher power. For the Temptress, we have... Vin's constant sort of isolation, particularly from her husband in the form of, I can't share anything. It's something we talked about a lot in the departure. I think it makes a really good temptation. In several instances in the book, she says, I wish I could share this information or what I've learned, but if I do that, everything could be ruined. It's a large weight on her shoulder. And so I think that temptation is there, but she, as a good hero, doesn't fall for it. Now, our atonement with the creator, I think, perhaps is the most potent of all our steps in the initiation in which she has numerous conversations with Ruin himself uh, when she's uh, starting with when she's trapped in that underground trap that was set by Yeoman uh, and then afterwards he seems to appear to her and they have multiple conversations but he talks about how he chose her and he molded her and he made her who she was she was always the one is the, is the words that he uses and uh, so that heavily uh, implies a, a, a creator uh, interaction, uh, you know, whoever holds the ultimate power. So this is awesome because this person who is both her creator is also the person who's trying to be her destruction, uh, which I think really delves into the nature of ruin. Uh, in one of the, the little blurbs from Sazed's book that he leaves at the end, it talks about how ruin builds things up only to then destroy other things, which is then is a perfect example of that. Now, our apotheosis, which is always is our um, realization, it comes uh, a nice little chunk later in which uh, Vin realizes two important things. One, that the earring that she wears was a spike that was allowing Ruin to interact with her. And more importantly, she's being really beat on by all these misborn and inquisitors who've got her trapped down. And she uh, she realizes that the mists themselves are of preservation and that they can fuel her. Um, I don't want to say pheromancy because that's the wrong one. Allomancy. Allomancy. All right. Uh, and the mists themselves can fuel her allomancy. And, uh, and then she 
does a big butt whooping to all the people who were kicking her butt earlier. And so it's a, it's a real spike in power level. In fact, so much though that she pulls all this into herself and ascends to godhood and leads immediately to our ultimate boon in which she fights with Ruin in the spiritual plane. Um, I'm not sure for the purposes of our discussion how much into that fight we want to discuss and how much is going to be left for the return. Um, there's certain, there, because that's kind of an extended moment from Vin's point of view. There's even a discussion about how time is meaningless to a god. Um, but Vin eventually defeats uh, Ruin, although it does cost her her own life and therefore achieves her ultimate boon of, of defeating Ruin. Um, even if she wasn't able to uh, cross the uh, T's and dot the I's on the on the ending of the apocalypse. Can we talk about how stupid the idea that time means nothing to a god? Well, time means so much to the shards because the longer you spend stuck with the shards' intent, the harder it is to act against it. <laughs> Good yeah, point. That's like the whole reason that she can do what she does is because she doesn't hold the shard for too long. Okay. <laughs> So I just had a revelation that is probably very late to the party of people who are big Cosmere fans. Um, does Is that a thing that people think that Hoyd is trying to wait out all the people who took the shards so that he can then bring them all together and be the new big boy? Uh, uh, it is very common the case. Oh, yeah, there's there are a lot of people out there who think that he is trying to recreate Adonalsium. Um Is that how you pronounce it? I always say Andalusium. <laughs> yeah, Adonalsium. So, because the root word is Adonai, like the, okay. the Hebrew god. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, yeah. At least I know some people say Adonalsium, but I say Ad. I also say Adolin, not Adolin. So I don't know. <laughs> hmm. So that's not, I, I don't know why I just thought of that out of the blue, but that's something that other people think, but has been told is probably not the case. Well, I mean, who knows at this point? It, it's it's a valid theory. He's certainly going around and collecting investiture and perhaps connection to all of the different shards. But I don't think that's what his ultimate goal is. The longest con in the history of long con. Well, yeah. we know that. Right, he he was he was part of the effort for yep. the shattering. He specifically didn't want to take a shard, yep. mm -hmm. and he doesn't seem to want to destroy the other shards either. He just wants to. But in destroying the other shards, he would then have to take that shard essentially, if he didn't want somebody new to get it. So by letting them all kind of run their natural course, I feel like there's a moment in which they get invested into enough um, concentrated individuals that you can just be like, all right, I'm just going to do it all at once and take instead of fighting 17 individual people, I fight two people or. Yeah, but he doesn't, he doesn't seem to right? like no one's trying to, no one other than maybe Dalinar is trying to put honor back together again. Right. When his yeah. time on Atlantis isn't about trying to, piece together the splintered uh, dominion and devotion. I'm blanking on the devotion. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So I don't know. It, it's always appealing. And I remember the first time that I thought of that and said it to Alex and Alex went, Oh buddy, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a phase we all have to go through for the road trials. Zach, I think that the road trials definitely exist, but the, 
most important aspect to me is this magical conflict you highlighted. I don't think that the other trials are really necessary or related back to this quest. At the end of the story, we see that finding Ruin and the Atium are the most important parts of the quest. So I think that the magical trial is really the only important one, but you even highlighted in there three different points that I think are fine, like the discovery of hemallergy, fighting the inquisitors, and then struggles with ruin all for me would still fit on the road of trials, even though I don't think that political conflict or the military conflict you highlighted really relate back to the quest. Yeah, I think I, I chose them more as a rounding out of the character uh, because I felt there was a multitude of topics under each. But I agree with you that if we were simply to go by her ultimate goal of saving schedule and defeating ruin, that the magical conflicts that she grows from um, play the largest factor. For the meeting with the higher power, the ball is like, I don't know, it seems a little bit too abstract, abstract for me, too obscure. Yonin don't think really gives a very strong gift. So if we even wanted to refer to him as the higher power, he locks Vin away and allows her to interact with Ruin. But aside from that, I don't think he specifically gives her any gifts. Uh, that's and Ron. He, cool. he um, provides aid to the entirety of their armies during the whole Oh, the Koloses are. They remember when Ruin takes away the uh, control of the Kolos armies from Vin and Ellen, and they're fighting against it. And then there's the earthquake. He, yes, but isn't he Elon's higher power for the things yeah. you're talking about? Yeah. This falls into a, this kind of trap we've been seeing, where there are so many point of view characters and so much going on that Yeoman might fulfill the higher power role for Elon. But I, I don't think he does for Vin. The only other person I considered the, as the higher power for Vin was Marsh. But I think chronologically it doesn't fall well enough in place for our journey. I think it fell too close to the atonement apotheosis boon be worthwhile because you know he ultimately gives her the gift of removing her earring and um you know even though he then goes and kills her husband but that's not the point um he was the only other person yeah, I looked at he doesn't kill it kill even he's controlled okay yeah so i think uh there is a meeting with a higher power trope in this book, but it's subverted. And that is Hoyd. Oh, it's the, I was going to meet with a higher power and didn't because my other higher power told me not to. Yep. Huh. Interesting. I like it. That's one of the things that Brandon Sanderson does in these books is subvert the tropes a little bit. So that, That's I think, fits. What, uh, what do we think Hoyd would have said to uh, to her? I think he would have given her information about hemallergy. Ooh. Do we know how widely understood hemallergy is outside of... By Hoyd, we assume that he knows um, everything. It's, it's not super widely known, but it is known because we have Chris writing the Ars Arcanum, of course, and she's not a 
you know, she's not a native of Scadriel. Yeah. Um, and, and I would imagine Hoyt is aware of it. Uh, he, he certainly has, you know, a finger on the pulse of yeah. ways that shards can influence people. And that is something he is specifically trying to avoid. So he would be very interested in figuring out what hemolurgy is and what it can do. Interesting. I hadn't thought about Hoyd's aversion to Shard's influence via his accruing of investiture methods, um, specifically in Roshar with um, when he picks up his fairy. Have we gotten a word of Brandon for how he's got, is he just staying at a low enough uh, soul count? Well, no. Um, <laughs> oh, like tier of oath to not be invested too much to leave the play, leave the. Uh, we don't realm. know yet. Uh, yeah. We do not know yet. Um, maybe you guys can answer this for me too. Uh, the discussion on Adium and the pits being a center for interworld trade um, mm -hmm. from world hoppers is the Adium the thing that everybody wants because it's pure investiture. No, it's a really easy place to. It's a really stable perpendicular ah, perpendicularity. Correct. Yeah, uh, I, I thought, I'm I thought sure. The well, was there's the pit also on. Well, the well, the well is a perpendicularity. They they both are, but okay. the well is super inaccessible because it's literally buried in the bottom of the most guarded place on you know yeah. schedule. Um, but as far as the pits go, I'm sure some adium made it off world. But I think there was a more general mercantile trade. Ah, okay. Like uh, once your fans die. Economics don't go away even when you can travel between worlds. Yeah. They're still just looking for gold and spices. Exactly. <laughs> Tezzerets and Bolas's Grand Consortium there. Um okay. Let's let me ask this then. This is another uh cosmic thing. If I was, let's say, on the Nightblood plane where the the Egyptian Oh, let me ask you this, Drew. I kinda ruined it. I kinda ruined it. <laughs> oh, my. The preface, but in the one where they talk about colors and sound and stuff, Nolfus, what real world culture did you, when you read that, find a parallel with? Or have you gone so much into the cosmic that you can't remember necessarily your first impression? Oh, man. Yeah, I read the book right when it came out in like whatever, 09. Um, I mean, I got I got strong Roman vibes, like like peak Roman Empire vibes, hmm. um, for the court of the gods. Third opinion. That's good, Jack. But, you go. But the like the environment there is just so tropical that it was tough for me to like yank myself out of that. Yeah. We we had had a little debate on the court of the gods. Zach had a strong opinion. I got heavy like uh, Indian culture vibes from it. Zach, however, it's so Egyptian. It's the most Egyptian thing ever. Um, and I just all their architecture in my head was like big Egyptian, Middle Eastern, like sandstone, and 
Oh yeah, I could see that actually. I mean the the god kings yep. like pyramid. Yep. And and they all live in this like court of the gods that's sequestered, so the gods walk among them, but they have to be sacrificed to and Yeah. Anyway. Oh, I could see that. I could see that. Um completely unrelated. But what I'm saying is if they were on that plane and you had a piece of adium and you consumed it, would you get X number of of souls worth of investiture no you no. Uh, you still tap preservation and tap adium in the same way okay yeah you, you would need to you would need to be an allomancer to use adium gotcha it's not a ready no enough source of investiture that it can be easily tapped by like how they talk about that some of the other people use the sh the uh, storm light as a as a source of investiture to keep themselves alive Right, because, well, I, I'm sure you could use adium in other ways, like in other applications, but you couldn't swallow it uh, okay. and burn it like a Mistborn. Um, Who knows what would happen if you made an adium fabril? But... Oh, yeah, bad news. Uh, <laughs> or if you somehow managed to get so many breaths that you could awaken something Ooh. made of adium. Which is specifically not what Nightblood is. Which we were is specifically that. not what Nightblood is. But Zach, about 40 minutes on the wiki like I spent this morning will leave you more confused toward, but there are technical answers to your questions discussing the use of each alimantic. If you go to each metals page, it'll talk about its uses. And then for ones that have word of Brandon's on them, It'll talk about the theoretical propositions of it interacting with other forms of investiture on other worlds. Hmm. Is White Sands the only story that takes place on that planet? So far. Okay. Zach, go read Rhythm of War. Shut up and keep going. Um, where were we? Were we on uh, your, uh, meeting with higher power? We just finished meeting. Yeah. Probably see yeah. red, so we weren't finished. The Temptress. I think was our Tempest, next. Yeah. yeah. So, hmm. yeah, for, for the temptress here, I don't see it, Zach. I don't see Vin wanting to share her plans with Evelyn. She knows she can't, and there's no, there's no real temptation to share them with him. He knows that she can't share them. Like everyone knows we can't share the plans and that's fine. They're trusting each other to do what their roles are. Vin is going to, think about and deal with ruin eland is going to focus mostly on the emperor the empire and the military so i think their worlds are very split but i think there might be a temptress in this despair that vin feels when she's locked in in the cavern and going a little bit forward into our meeting with the higher power when she's talking with ruin there is a temptation to fall into this despair this idea that she she cannot win that he's too vast too powerful so i don't, I don't really see this desire to show the plan with eland as one but i think there might be one um with despair so uh i i don't think uh this you know the desire to share plans with eland is uh you know meeting with the temptress and in some ways i don't think there is such a a moment um this is another thing that in my mind brandon has subverted and that is because of at least my interpretation of the the material aspect of this element of the hero's journey. I think there's an opportunity for Brandon 
uh, like had he chosen to do it this way, the balls themselves, the the noble society, mm. and the return to the balls could have been a temptation for her to return to Valette instead of being Vin. Yeah. But he chose not to explore that avenue. Yeah, I think at most they go, oh, hey, we should definitely attend balls more. That was nice. Mm -hmm. uh, Vin comments on how that's a part of her, but yeah. not the dominant part of her. She is the sum of the street urchin and the misborn and the noble, but not just the noble. I think uh, Spook and Sazed both show it, but uh, I, again, we could play that game all day, so... They certainly outsource the temptation to uh, Spook, as that's like the bulk of his character arc is overcoming it. But I, I think, uh, as Drew said, with sort of this option to have that as a as a temptress with the balls, we're seeing truly fleshed out the problem that we've seen with other sort of or not other. Sorry, with heavy serialized characters, is that Vin is already so fully realized mm -hmm. that they're we're, we're hitting these the ones that are for the most part we're hitting the story moments but not necessarily the moments that we normally attach to interpersonal growth for our atonement with the creator i think ruin appearing to vin definitely fits this as like a literal god part of the duo who created the entire world and also, in a more personal sense, this appearance of Reen to Vin for the first time um, when Ruin talks to her shows, like, Ruin is personally invested in the creation of Vin. Reen obviously had a lot of influence on Vin as she was growing up, and then his voice that she heard, which we find out was really Ruin, guided a lot of her character and decisions. Um, so I I think that this is probably, like Zach said, the, the best example of a point that we get. In I think it's one of the best examples we've ever had of an atonement with the creator. He goes so far back to tell, like, I made your mom spike you for me. I mean, I, that's not, you know, joking. He doesn't literally say it, it but, but yeah. You know, it goes, we get to see that he, he's been so involved with her creation. And it's cool because... You know, we've got that absent kind of father figure that Kelsier took up in the first series when really you could add this kind of subtle, the whole time Ruin was her father figure. And yes, uh, it's cool. I mean, could you imagine if you found out that your internal monologue was occasionally an evil god telling you things? I'd have yeah. to say that that has crossed my mind before, Jack, but I ruled it out as implausible. <laughs> No, I, I think that's a, a really good point, that in a lot of ways, Vin is the creation of Ruin. She is just as much the creation of preservation, of course, but both, you know, both shards were putting a lot of time and energy into setting her up for specific goals. And this is her atonement, so to speak, um, where she she has the first... Uh, you know, realization of exactly what kind of person she is in the power plays among the gods on this world. Which I think is interesting, Drew, especially because we don't get any inherent um, 
I guess, why then in particular? I, I don't think that's a question is answered thoroughly enough. There's certainly a level of timing was right as far as when she was born and the situation that was born. But I can think of a handful of other misborn that would have equally fulfilled the role. And so Kelsier. Well, yeah, maybe. But I also think well, um, he, he's a he's a misborn with a sibling that would have been, that is a seeker. Uh, right. What's, Alan, what's Alan's brother's name? Zane. Zane could have potentially fulfilled the role. Um, I just, I, and I also feel like there was opportunity for the shards um, focus to be split amongst two characters, but maybe that was more thoroughly explored in Zane v. Vin in book two. Yeah. Um, yep. So maybe that's why we, we didn't see that in book three, but um, I don't know. I think it's just a, I, we never get a why, but I don't think it necessarily needs to be one. I just think it's a very interesting question. Why is Vin targeted from such a young age when we don't really know anything, or even the shards don't know much about her, who she is. Yeah, we come into a, a pretty interesting conversation with this idea, and and that is um, the idea of free will versus predestination. Mm -hmm. Because we would like to think that, you know, not only in real life, but in the Cosmere, people have free will. But the implication is given here that, uh, especially when you read Mistborn Secret History, Kelsier was not suitable for this because he was inherently too connected to ruin mm -hmm. and couldn't be a viable vessel for preservation. And Vin was also, you know, connected to ruin more on that end, but was better for preservation. And Sezed is the perfect balance. And we know that there have been manipulations in their lives from a very young age. So... Like, is, is there something inherent in a spirit web connecting, capital C, connecting people to different shards? And, uh, capital and, C connection. And they don't have as much free will as they may, you know, think or want to have? Well, so we know that your spirit web is at least partially determined by DNA. So some part of it is certainly mm -hmm. hereditary. Mm -hmm. But capital C connection and capital I identity definitely seem to be environmental mutable, mutable, uh, right. Mutable in a way they're not fixed that, predetermined. Well, really. does dangerous to say that's real dangerous. Yeah. Does Zed have the wherewithal to pick up the shards at the end of this book? If, What's her name? His love doesn't die in the in the taking of the capital. Yeah, and I don't think we ever get any indication from Harmony or any other character that that was just a random occurrence and not something that Ruin was specifically, or even preservation, but Ruin was specifically doing in order to affect Sazed in a way, or was Sazed such a blind side? from both parties that they weren't meddling as much as they were with other characters. And how much does foresight come into things mm -hmm. with Terrace prophecies? Yeah. I mean, there, there's some, not only like literary narrative things to dig into with this, but some like metaphysical morality 
Um, and and I know that Brandon has tried to distance himself from answering absolute questions of morality in the Cosmere. Um, but there are implications that he has perhaps inadvertently made um, through his writing. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have read Dawn Shard. Yeah, yes. I think yes. we've all read everything except for me reading the war. So when we're talking about uh, connection and spiritual identity, capital I identity, uh, in Dawn Shard, we have confirmation that the Reshi king is invested and has uh, is transgender. When Risen met the king in Words of Radiance, the king crazy guy? was in a no, the no. king was a female body, but the king is in a male body when the king visits Urethiru as a dust bringer in Dawnshard. Right, which means that that's, the healing process oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tra transmute their body to match their identity. Right, and so that brings up a, a bit of a you know metaphysical quagmire. Is this because the king wanted to become a man? Or is it because there is some like spiritual inherent identity that is a man? Zach, Zach, yeah, Zach, can you take your headphones off? We need to discuss a moment that happens in Rhythm of War for, for why, there's, why there's a strong point in the next book. <laughs> so, Calvin Scar! I'm going to walk into the other room so I don't even hear it from my headphones. Calvin Scar to all of them. Yeah. Yep. So, when, when Calvin Scar feels, it's a, oh, totally yeah, identical. It is. And, and it, this develops a a real metaphysical quagmire for Brandon Sanderson because what he has probably not intended to do, um, drawing the comparison between Kaladin Scar and the Reshi King has implied that transgender people are basically just transgender because they want to be. Because Kaladin couldn't heal his scar until he wanted, you know, so is it that he but what what implies that it isn't taking place at a subconscious level, right? It isn't it, when he finally he thinks that he wants to heal it earlier, it's, but it's uh, only when he it's the alignment of the cognitive and the spiritual. And like I mean it's a whole can of worms. Well so well so a whole can of worms, but it is interesting. So the Reshi king, right, if he was still Right, the way that people, lots of transgender people are still in that phase when they were exploring who they were, but had attained a bond, then would his body have changed to match his identity? Or is it only when the Reshi King both had access to the power and had fully understood who they really were and therefore made that change, right, accepted yeah. their gender, right, their actual gender misaligning with the body they were born in? Is that when it would have happened? And we don't have the answer to that question. I'm guessing Sanderson, given his general modern and progressive views, probably intends it more that way. But I'm that sure is, he does. That could also be my transference because I my my views are definitely liberal. Yeah, I well, I'm sure he is trying to present it that way, but may not have fully thought through the like realmatic implications of Correct. Making this happen with the Reshi King and making Kaladin's scars, uh, you know, 
work the way they do. Like it's 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 oh it is... a tightrope he's walking here. <laughs> I it would not surprise me if after what he thought was such a right, I'm guessing he probably thought this was a relatively clean answer because he wouldn't have probably done it otherwise. Yeah. That we'll probably see something more explicit in the future to uh come out on the right side of things to right wow well we got really far afield uh <laughs> yeah that's part of the fun it, it it and that's back. part of the yeah. genius of brandon sanderson as a writer that you can go from talking about something as universal as ubiquitous as the hero's journey and end up in a you know a, a fraught nuanced discussion of um LGBT representation in modern science fiction and fantasy. Like, <laughs> all right. So coming, coming back, coming way back. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about the apotheosis here. So Zach said it was the realization that the earring was how Bruno was talking it's to her, part of it. and then yeah, and then that she can use the mist to fuel herself. So this first part, the realization that the earring is a spike, essentially is not really a realization that Vin has, right? Marsh pulls the earring from her ear and then then she has the apotheosis. Then she can use the mist. So the second part, yes. The first part, no, for me. I mean, the sec like I said, the second one's the more important of the two. Yeah. Um, but the I think it's it's so quickly followed by one another that the Second part would not be possible without the first part, which is why I also talked a little bit about Marsh as being the um, potential yeah, higher power. power because of the gift that, that uh, mm -hmm. he gives her. But again, I thought chronologically it, it wasn't as tight. So I kind of I wanted to talk about it from a person of it's a good narration point, um, even if it's shadowed by the fact that she draws preservation into herself from the mists. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I think this fits pretty freaking well uh, for a, a hero's apotheosis. Um, yeah. There is the the ascension based on knowledge. There is the like new equipment, so to speak, allowing our hero Vin to confront a previously insurmountable foe. Uh, I I think it's all here. And I think similarly, we're all going to say that Vin gets her ultimate boon and her fight and eventual defeat of Ruin on the spiritual plane. The only quibble that I have, and it's super small because uh, someone else does this immediately, is Vin doesn't save Scaladriel. <laughs> she, she defeats Ruin, yes, but she doesn't, she doesn't personally save Scaladriel from destruction that Ruin has already set in place. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that without her actions, yeah. it was it, there would have been no chance for anyone to save it. She saves it from half the threat. Somebody else finishes the cleanup. Yeah. Could yeah. Um, if Sazed had had the realization of what the miss is and for preservation, would he have been able to take up the mantle of solely preservation like Vin did, or is that because he's not a misborn something that he wasn't capable of? Oh, I think he would have been capable of taking up just preservation. Yeah. 
would anybody have been? Like if someone popped in from Roshar and no. Well, you have to be aligned with a shared. Yeah. You need to have that connection with the capital C. Uh, yeah. We see this a little bit in Mistborn Secret History with the Irie, where they don't have the proper connection, so they have to bring along their little like contraption. Yeah, those are the ice people, right? Uh, they're from Elantris. Yeah. Wait, they're from Elantris? Yeah, they're Elantrians. Yeah. Oh, shit. How, how do we know that? <laughs> Uh, so one of them swears uh, Merciful Domai in the book. <laughs> uh, and also Aeon Iri is one of the uh, uh, one of the Aeons in Elantris. That's yeah. great. Um, <laughs> so so were they able to do their geographical based uh, no, magic? to be on world. Well, so if you remember in Mistborn Secret History, they had their fortress, right? Yeah, there was a giant glowing pipe off into the distance. They were literally piping in the door, so they couldn't use their magic. So they could still use investiture. <laughs> yeah. Wait, the pipe is going through like the the cognitive, the cognitive realm? realm. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit! They're channeling like raw uh, door. That makes a lot of implications. <laughs> channeling it from the right spot. There's a lot of implications there of. Yeah. <laughs> if you could have a strong enough tether to your home world. <laughs> huh. Well, again, just from the wiki hall I was done this morning, there's also something weird with identity and connection and like suppressing and improving the right levels of it in theory would let you tap geographically uh, geo-locked investiture from other places. Yeah, yeah. If uh, when when you have that connection to a land, um, it makes things tough. You know, uh, especially yeah. when you have something like the door or any of the cell-based magics, because all that investiture is trapped in the cognitive realm instead of the spiritual realm, which, which transcends location. And so, like, if you can unlock your geographic identity or connection and Reestablish it over there. You could be like, "Oh yeah, now I could use this." Like, <laughs> so if you were from Elantris and you showed up on Roshar and you took a hot air balloon way up into the air and you like really looked at the layout of the land and then walked it and learned the ways of its people and then you drew a tattoo of Roshar in your chest, you would get Roshar oh, no. investiture. No. Probably not. Okay. <laughs> you would you would need to access Roshar's investiture. Well, actually, mm. Zach, read Rhythm of War so that we can talk about this next okay. bit because there's there's some clear implications that the pe right the humans on Roshar do we don't know when but they do have a capital C connection with the land. Now. Okay. Yeah. Also, yeah. isn't Elantris the plane <laughs> in which a the copycat girl, the forgery girl story takes place? Yep. Mm -hmm. The yes. Chinese one, and then. The um, isn't that also where the like Elantris heavily has the kind of brutal orc church, not orcs, but the, like, the Dakor monks, yeah, yeah, from the north, right? And they're they are the ones who carve it on their bones, the east, but yeah, yeah, they they carve runes on their bones, and that gives them access to the door. That's the coolest shit ever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, forgery also has some really weird. 
implications and stuff that Brendan said, right? With what it could, oh how it could interact, kind of similar to if you knew what you were doing, you could do crazy shit with it, like hem, uh, hemology. Yeah, there's there's some like if you have a ton of investiture at your hands and a really solid knowledge of forgery, you can do insane stuff. Uh, <laughs> I think the craziest example I read this morning was talking about somehow using it to convince a shard blade that it had two owners. That's yes. cool. Okay. But you would need so much investment. Much investment. Yeah. The thing that I guess I still don't understand and I meant changing the order of changing the order of a spren. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like, that it you were all of a sudden a skybreaker if you if you were the right kind of person and a wind runner already. Yeah, it's so ridiculous. So forgery isn't isn't isolated <laughs> to that Chinese region of Elantris's plane. It the is. people doing it have oh, to yeah. be of my pal bond or whatever, however it's said. Interesting. It so it's not no. just, it's not like hemallergy where it's anyone with investiture no. could do it. Yeah. It's so all of the sellish magics are regionally locked. You need the right identity and connection to the right area of the world to even access the magic. Which brings us to to uh, but what if you had enough fortune? That thing that no one understands, what, including me. What if both of your What if both of your parents were from well, each parent was from a different part of your sellish uh, region? It would depend on your spiritual DNA. Yeah, your SDNA, your spirit web. Yep. Okay, fine. <laughs> Whatever to find connection and identity. <laughs> Okay, okay, we should, we should get back on track. We talk about it as the ultimate boon being the fight itself. Is it in defeating Ruin that we think she's achieved her ultimate boon? Or is it in, atta- in ascending to preservation that she now gaining the power for this fight that is the boon itself? No, the, the, the boon is the gift that lets her do the fight, but the, the yeah. boon is also the destruction of ruin right it's like because the 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 boon little b i guess is the i got the i get a rise to preservation i get to fight ruin but the ultimate boon the step is the defeat of of ruin uh so is it then not elms right the actual ability to defeat ruin comes from yes. that final severing of elms death that she no longer has yep anything tethering her to the world so she is free to go against her shardic intent which completely plays against the revelation that she had in book two yeah (laughs) Uh, of protecting ellen but no the uh, i think i think that's exactly right the boon the ultimate boon with capital you know uh, capitonyms is ellen's sacrifice it's him burning Duralumin and Adium together, seeing into the spiritual realm, seeing the future, sacrificing himself against Marsh, and giving Vin the opportunity to do what she needs to do to defeat Ruin, because she no longer has Ellen to live for. Because Ellen is the real hero! <laughs> and that, due to some phenomenal editing on Alex's part, is going to bring us to the end of the initiation. <laughs> With a uniform decision uh, on Drew and I's part, uh, with just the meeting with the higher power and the Temptress missing. Yeah. Yeah, I I did not buck the trend this time. (laughs) Well, let's see if if we get any spicy disagreements in the return. 
Uh, I will say, before we get into the return, I anticipate uh, I will not have too much dissension because my major dissensions have been in the like hero's journey structure across three books versus in one book. And now we're at the end of both. So let's see. Unfortunately, due to the nature of Vin's uh, success over Ruin, we have her death following the death of her husband. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a it's a fight to the death between her and Ruin. And since they are so evenly matched, it means the destruction of both of them. And uh, And so... Her body uh, appears on the ground and leaking preservation. <laughs> and Ruin's body appears on the ground, leaking his essence. And Sazed comes upon it and takes both of those, remembering the different aspects of the different religions, realizes he was the hero of ages all along, and brings it into himself and takes them balanced within himself and becomes harmony. Now, unfortunately, that wonderful um, bit of, of conclusion does take away something from Vin's specified return as far as a hero's journey goes. Um, I have here that her refusal of the return is her own death because in a perfect hero's journey, um, her return would have been taking the power from preservation and somehow storing it within herself to be eked out slowly or, you know, surviving to, to communicate with her people and, and give them gifts as time goes on. But unfortunately that's not possible. She's refused that by getting herself killed. Um, her magical flight. If we want to really kind of throw it out of order here, we could put um, in her ascension to godhood in which she uh, absorbs the mists of preservation and ascends. Uh, you could also, eh, a little weaker tie it into how she gets to be in space and look at everything at the same time and fly around the world. But I find that one very loose, uh, even more so than the first argument. Uh, her rescue from without, I think, since we've said that Ellen's sacrifice, which I originally thought as an okay rescue or else she was going to be at a stalemate the whole time. We've talked about how that's more part of the ultimate boon. Um, meanwhile, her rescue from without is Sazed being able to save the world when she couldn't. You know, she ran out of her ability to help anybody when she died, but Sazed wouldn't have been able to take that power and fix the world had, had it not been for her actions to defeat Ruin. Her crossing of the return threshold is into the spiritual plane. Uh, if we're keeping completely within the book, uh, it's not expanded it on uh, a ton, uh, but she is uh, she's sent to the spirit plane and she gets to be with Ellen and, and everything's hunky-dory there. Um, in fact, she gets to be with a lot of different characters. Um, unfortunately, not the best one. Uh, her master of two worlds is the godhood that she achieves. Um, she becomes, you know, the master of her allomancy by doing that. She becomes uh, the master of the fate of her people. It's, it's pretty much anything anyone could want godhood is just a kind of an all-encompassing thing um now her freedom to live if we're keeping completely within the book uh is that she gets to be with ellen but we don't actually get to see that interaction really so uh don't love our freedom to live if we're staying solely in the novel Overall, <laughs> good good return and by good good return i mean yeah but it's got some pieces. so just starting off with our refusal of return I think that your 
correct. I, I don't think you ever you actually had one, which I think is correct. I don't think there is a refusal it's for of being dead. She, yeah, no, this doesn't 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 fit for me. Um, she's achieved this power and now is moving on from it. She's not going back to the world in a physical sense of returning to Scalazriel or in a like metaphorical sense of even being concerned about the world now that she knows it's saved, especially after um, Sazed saves the world for her. Um, and the magical flight, the ascension into godhood, it doesn't fit for like timeline wise, yes. And also it's not flying away from the danger where the ultimate boon is achieved, which is one of the things that we also try and focus on when she achieves the ultimate boon is only because she ascended to godhood. And it, like we had mentioned before, Elin's sacrifice is what allows her to achieve that ultimate boon. So that happens after she has already taken the power. It, it just doesn't fit in so many different ways that I don't like it as a magical flight. Yeah. So uh, I think things get really messy at the end of this book. Uh, there are a lot of elements of the hero's journey that are, in my opinion, absolutely hit on, but they're not necessarily mm -hmm. in the right order. Um, the, the refusal of the return, I think, is there, but it's earlier. It's before the ultimate boon. It's her refusal to sacrifice herself to achieve what is her ultimate freedom to live. And, and, you know, and, and that's, uh, as Zach said, um, being able to be with Ellen. And only when she receives that boon, does she uh, get that freedom. And so like, this is once again, Brandon, I think being very aware of the hero's journey and purposely shuffling the deck. Uh, the problem is that it screws things up. <laughs> <laughs> Only for us, I don't think we literalists, which we're not. Yeah. I, I don't think it screws things up. I think it makes it a more interesting story when it doesn't fall exactly as you would expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Further rescue from without. I like the point of Sazed saving the world, as as I kind of mentioned in the ultimate boon. Vin doesn't get to do that. Someone else has to kind of do it for her. And I see that fitting the rescue from without, even though it's not saving Vin from death or, you know, injury, um, it, it does fulfill her ultimate, ultimate goal. So I, I like that point. Yeah. I, I think right. that's, that's pretty on point. Um, it it does work as a rescue from without within the thematic structure of Mistborn, not necessarily the the more generic monomyth, but the monomyth as presented in Mistborn. For crossing of the return threshold, I don't I don't know. For usually with a return threshold, we don't try and focus on the returning to the world that we initially left in our um, initiation. In in this case, I 
think I do want to highlight that a little bit because Vin can't return to even the planet that she was on um, for our before our initiation occurred. We have literally said earlier that the spiritual realm transcends place. You can that, that's fair. <laughs> That's fair. I think the uh, the argument, though, that is, is a crossing of the trans threshold is she's exiting into the spiritual plane to be with Eland um, using a small bit of outside knowledge. We know that he is already in the spiritual plane and she has to accept that to go to be with him. So that would be where I see a crossing of the trans threshold. But Drew and Jack, you, you marked this before I even started talking. So what, what do you see as that crossing of the threshold? For me, at least, I have to agree with the idea that if, if we're okay with, right, the rescue from without taking place when Sazed saves the world for her, that this entire end part still encompasses Vin's journey, even if she's not necessarily present, and that this crossing of the return threshold is kind of really tied with her freedom to live in she's accomplished her mission as well as she could. And she's returning to what she wanted, right? Which is Ellen in whatever way that she can. Yeah. So I'm, I'm treating this in a very, um, in the walls of this book perspective and that is at the start of the book, she has found her balance and found her peace in a relationship with Ellen and found her like role as a partner with him rather than a protector necessarily. And so her choice leads to, you know, her choice of sacrifice leads to her returning to a partner role in a, uh, a presumably eternal peace, you know, uh, of a relationship with him rather than being a watchful God. She's returning to where she was at the beginning of the book in a similar relationship standpoint with Ellen. Okay. Yeah. I, I like that. I think that's what I was seeing too. It, it's not returning to the world. It's returning to her situation yeah. in life. Yeah. All right. Assuming that, you know, Heaven is heaven. We don't really know. Yeah, we don't know what the beyond is, is, but if the beyond is what we think it is... Is the beyond the spiritual realm? The beyond is not the spiritual realm, but it's a spiritual realm? I don't (laughs) (laughs) know. It's definitely not the place that the knights go in... No, no, no. Shadsmar is the cognitive realm. I mean, we we get some some later information... uh, without going into detailed spoilers where the spiritual realm in the three realmatic planes uh, is something different because the spiritual realm is where the shards live. And we know the shards cannot see where the souls of the dead go. So it's something else. It's something beyond. But they can communicate with them in that time in between. They go, they go, you're, you're, Upon your death, for the most part, death being in air quotes, because, you know, <laughs> yeah, type, what is it now? Type, uh, type, formerly type, type zero, two, now type, type one. Yeah. Biochromatic entities or whatever. <laughs> uh, the way of thinking of cognitive shadows messes mm-hmm. with it a little bit, but. It does. 
but but uh, those cognitive yeah. shadows only linger for so long before that consciousness goes beyond. Yes, unless something else. Unless they're super dedicated. Well, and, no, and have because... a chunk of investiture to latch onto. <laughs> but that, that raises right the the whole question that is raised is 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 the cognitive shadow really still the spirit or is it the imprint of the power yep. on the memory? No, it's when you get different, the, you know, different people who are shadows have different. No, it's when you get the new God King who now rules everything to help find you a new body. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, uh, master of the two worlds. Is that the next one? Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, and Godhood. Sure. I don't really like that i i think that vin's worlds are we've already highlighted them a little bit her being a mistborn and her um being a noble and her being a, like the street urchin person and she combined all of those and mastered those i think fairly well in our first two books and less so here so I'm having a hard time seeing how I, I know Godhood is like encompassing everything, but I have a hard time seeing what two worlds she mastered in this step. Yeah, I mean, I I'm still hanging out on the undecided front because while it's hard to argue with the literalism of Zach's, she's attained Godhood and therefore at least briefly master mastery over what was functionally her entire all encompassing all the possible worlds that she could have been. I have to agree with you that from again, an interpersonal character relationship, she achieved a mastery earlier. And in this book, she's not, I'm, I see less of that conflict in her arc. So I'm not sure if there's any room for it here. I think if you look at her relationship with Ellen and the, ability to let him go to accept his letting go here in the end is also uh she rages so hard she kills herself and a god another god <laughs> i'm not sure what acceptance you're looking for i mean we, we we just spent like 10 minutes talking about how that allowed her to do what she needed to do without holding back but that that's Elm's choice but doesn't mean she doesn't have to achieve the mastery through her own means. Right. I'm, I'm just saying that the, the, I, I think you're painting her perspective on it with a different brush. She, she achieves this state, but it's not. Uh, I don't think she has to be the one to be the reason she achieves the mastery. Right. But she, she accepts that she can't bring Ellen back, but. I, it, she doesn't attack ruin in a tranquil place. She is pissed as all hell. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, I agree with what you're saying, obviously. That is not uh, something that is debatable. I am not aligning with your analysis of it. My takeaway? Yeah. Well, Drew, you're, uh, you're currently agreeing with Zach, so what's your thoughts? And I, I think it's interesting because my take on this comes from a different angle. And that is the, her literal ascension to godhood grants her not only physical mastery over the, uh, you know, 13 steel inquisitors attacking her, but also a newfound spiritual magical mastery over the art of allomancy. 
uh, as she becomes one with the mists and ultimately gives her the tools to defeat a god as well as the ultimate physical enemies in the Steel Inquisitors. Then for me, that takes it out of this place, which doesn't really have an yeah. effect on the like, step, but and, and it, it does. Yeah, really like right. I said, I think there is an awareness um, on Brandon Sanderson's part in the climax of this book where he he knows that he has on some level been writing the hero's journey, but he has chosen to write in certain aspects of it out of order to make them work together. And it's, it's tough. Cause it's like on, on the one side, I'm like, well, it doesn't align. And that's why I said it gets messy. <laughs> I mean, if, you wanted, if you wanted a master of two worlds, you could just go, Hey, Sazed got the mastery of both halves of himself. And I mean, well, but that's a different character's uh, journey. That, that that very clearly fits as a moment there, depending on where you put his. Oh yeah. If you wanna, if you wanna go less obvious, you could say that Spook at the end is able to both be a Mistborn and have his, you know, what made him different and odd and and kind of looked down on in some ways now elevates him to a level of people use his stupid street slang as nobility speak for the next four hundred years. But I think you've just said what still makes this linger as a problem for me and where Drew and I might have to split one more time is again, that those, those two things that we just talked about as potentially good uh, masteries of two worlds, those come from characters that are feeling just split between multiple places and been so clearly resolved lots of those issues in herself in the previous two books that I, I, I think it's still a no from me, but I mean, just like we're torn, right? Our listeners might disagree as well. And they can always reach out to us at a underscore heroes underscore journey at Twitter and let us know. And also on our Twitter right now, we're running a giveaway of a signed copy of To Sleep in a Sea of Stars by Christopher Paolini, his most recent Ooh. publication. Uh, we're very excited to be giving this away to celebrate our 40th episode and end of our first year of podcasting. You have about another week, uh, depending on when you listen to this. We're going to end the giveaway on Monday, December 21st. Just go on our on our Twitter um, and like or retweet the pinned tweet um, saying that we're giving this book away. And please share that with your friends. We have a link to our podcast in there. Um, so hopefully you can share that with some people who would enjoy it. Christopher Bellini wants you to. He retweeted it. Hey, our last point for uh, freedom to live. I think we can all agree that Finn achieves the freedom to live going into the beyond. Um, And especially if you have read Secret History, there is like Vin stating basically that that is a freedom to live. She's got to go be with Elin. She had the opportunity to stay and left. So perfect. Yeah, 100%. Which, uh, even given our split decisions, leaves us with a final score on both sides of 10 out of 17. Dropping below what we normally think of as our threshold for following the hero's journey. But as we've talked about through subversion and other ways that this book plays out, I think this book still carries a lot of the hero's journey in it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... does not... 
exemplify all the points yeah. in order. So for my final thoughts for this book, I have been a big fan of the Mistborn series for many years, and it's been a lot of fun revisiting this from a new angle. Um, I'm more excited to talk about uh, in a episode, not our next episode, but in January when we're going to talk about Sazed's journey throughout the whole trilogy. Um, but I do really enjoy this book as as a capstone for the whole series. I think it does a really good job of tying together themes and um, developing these characters into very satisfying endings um, for for everyone. Vin, Eland, Tensoon, even all get really satisfying endings in this. Yeah. So Hero of Ages uh, for me is is a pretty spectacular book, uh, mostly defined by the strength of this is one of the best uh, climaxes to a series that I think I've ever read. And that ties into, you know, just the structure of heroes journeys for multiple characters across, you know, the whole series and in this book itself. Uh, it, it, it's got that, that perfect level of bittersweet, which I personally love where where it's not just a purely happy ending there's always that tinge of something that didn't quite work out but ultimately has a hopeful conclusion so uh cheers to brandon sanderson for pulling that off i also like hero of ages i think i like the surprises that the story was able to throw at a first-time reader as well as the depth that you can get from it with multiple rereads. And I think while we didn't choose to talk much about um, about Marsh and Spook and the journey that they took throughout the story, I think those are perhaps my favorite and most surprising pieces that happened within the story. Uh, I kind of discredited Spook from the first two books and then to see him play such an important role in the world of Skadriel um, was very refreshing. And then Marsh as a character, both in the trilogy and then moving forward into Era 2, is my second favorite uh, character in the series, even though the amount of information we have from him is, is rather sparse. Uh, much like Zach, uh, while I loved this book for and loved the parts that both Alex and Drew really enjoyed my particular favorite part of this book was getting to explore Condra society and getting this glimpse from this character that we'd met the last book of 10 soon because they were just so odd and so different and i kind of liked the ultimate reflection and moral of their society when in the end they make them getting to make the right choice and deciding for themselves that they were more of preservation than ruin for the most part, other than, you know, like the one or two that don't pull out their spikes. The uh, that just, that was the part of the ending that I think on my first read really worked for me the best, sucked me in, punched me in the gut, all the good stuff. And that's going to bring us fully to a close here on Hero of Ages, but as Alex said, not yet fully a close on Mistborn Era 1.
right. Well, yeah. Thanks for having me on as a guest. Uh, this was a ton of fun doing some judging and being a dissenting voice, apparently. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm Drew McCaffrey, a uh, guest panelist on A Hero's Journey and uh, one of the co-hosts of the Inking Out Loud podcast, as well as uh, contributing writer on tour.com. You can check out my book reviews there. Uh, but if you are interested in yet another giveaway, uh, since I know these fine gentlemen here are doing one right now, if you want to double up your uh, double up your luck in the Christmas season on Inking Out Loud, we're in the middle of a giveaway for a set of Way of Kings Leatherbounds. So check out our Rhythm of War spoiler-free review episode for details on that. And uh, yeah. It's been a it's been a fun time, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I have been your one true host and judge, Jack. <laughs> this is Alex. And I'm Drew McCaffrey. And join us next week as we dive back into the burning series with Fires of Vengeance by Evan Winter. Yay! Oh, thank you. Mm. Yeah, how often do uh, judges disagree on uh, uh, scores? This is uh, literally the second time that it's happened. Jack has complete authority and uses it indiscriminatorily. So. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we, we, we went with the title judge because they refused to let me call myself the Lord Ruler of this podcast for... <laughs> I'm here to destabilize your rule. <laughs> I'd like to revise my opinion on having guests on. <laughs> I'm I'm just here to it's stick a, a it, you know. It's a blood feud forever between you and I, Drew. Clearly, yeah. yeah. All right, Drew, Nemesis for life. <laughs> <laughs>